Senior Project and Research Officer at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Today, I'm joined by special guest Mei Fong, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the book One Child. May has spent over a decade as a foreign correspondent in Asia, most recently as China correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Her stories on the transformation of China in the lead-up to the 2008 Beijing Olympics formed part of the package that won the Wall Street Journal the 2007 Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting. May is also the recipient of Amnesty International's Human Rights Press Award, among other distinctions. She has taught journalism at universities in the U.S. and in China and is currently a fellow at think tank New America Foundation. May joins us today to talk about her book One Child, which examines the wide-ranging effects and legacy of China's controversial one-child policy. It is perhaps the most comprehensive and accessible account of how the one-child policy came about, why it lasted so long, and the continuing reverberations of the policy both within and outside China. One Child masterfully weaves history and statistical analysis with personal portraits, interviews with families affected by the policy, with those who introduced it, and with those who enforced it. Welcome to the program, May, and thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, Most of our listeners would likely be broadly aware of the One Child policy, but may not be across the history that underpins it and how it came about. Mm -hmm. So it would be great if you could give our listeners a brief overview of what preceded the policy uh, and how the policy itself was formulated. Okay, so the one-child policy, which is actually a very bad name for it, was basically um, a set of uh, rules of, uh, governing reproduction that was launched uh, in about 1979-1980. It lasted for roughly th- well over 30-plus years, and what it prim- was primarily aimed at was reducing population growth. And about roughly a third of all of Chinese households were restricted to one child per household. And these were primarily in urban areas. And the rest of it, there were certain exceptions to the rule, such as if you were one of China's minorities, or say, for example, if you lived in a rural area and you had your first child and it was a girl. But broadly speaking, it, you know, it was not a free-for-all in terms of having children. There were certain rules and regulations, and, and any infractions of that were met with um, punishments, you know, fines and some other much more substantial kinds of uh, painful punishments that could be done. And after a course of well over 30-plus years, last year, the Chinese government announced a, a a nationwide two-child policy now. So that has broadened the limits. But that said, there are still rules governing reproduction in mm. China. Yeah. Well, even even jumping before the one-child policy mm-hmm. uh, was introduced, there were already, as you mentioned in your book, family mm-hmm. planning measures in place mm-hmm. using less coercive measures. Yes. So there's the, um, the later, longer, fewer yes. uh, slogan, for example, um, and, and that was relatively successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why then the jump to from that to the one-child policy and who was ac- actually responsible for affecting it? China had a new set of leaders um, at about that time of the transition process, and what they staked their legitimacy on was um, economic growth. Uh, China was at that point very poor. They had just come out of the Cultural Revolution. Um, they had you know, suffered with the, uh, the Great Famines. And so there was a sense that if they did not 
rein in their population growth, they would never advance. So it was very much tied to that, the sense that, okay, we need to have fewer people, otherwise we don't have enough to eat. Um, and so that was basically one of the, the genesis for that. And as you mentioned before, they did have other policies previous to that that tried to, you know, much less coercive. However, um, this one-child policy was a big leap into a much more drastic um, regime, and this was partly because of a number. Um, Deng Xiaoping basically said, um, I want China to achieve, um, you know, a certain number of GDP by the year 2000, you know. And so working backwards, the policy wonks and the numbers and calculations people calculated, they would not be able to get to that without making it a very drastic reductions. So the one-child policy was born. Mm. And in terms of, you know, who actually came up with it, I mean, mm-hmm. I thought this was fascinating. I had no no idea that it was, or th- it was a rocket scientist well, who came up with, with the idea and planted the seed, at least initially. Well, there's certainly a lot of discussion among scholars mm. about, you know, who, you know, who wags the dog, does the tail wag the dog. Mm. So did a scientist determine policy or do the um, politicians determine it and therefore the scientists, um, you know, just implement it, you know, and I, I'm certainly of the that latter point of view. So I think that certainly the rocket scientists were the ones who came up with these numbers, mm. that's for sure, but that was at the directive or the aims of, mm. of the um, leaders leadership above them. Right. So, yeah. I, I mean, essentially, and of course, this is all... It's largely but still, it's still very, very yeah. surprising when you think about it. Well, who comes up with population planning policies? Mm. Is it uh, demographers? Is mm. it sociologists? Is it economists? Is it anybody with an understanding or study of human science, mm. your social sciences? Uh, no, it's uh, rocket scientists. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not one of them w- was a woman either. Yeah. So this policy, which largely affects women, mm. was, you know, is, is so much of history determined by men. Mm, absolutely. And um, I'd like to, to get to that point about women a bit later in the, the podcast. But um, so you mentioned, well, we just talked about the genesis of the one child mm-hmm. policy. Uh, going to the genesis of your book, One Child, um, you started writing it after a a miscarriage, mm-hmm. and this personal element is threaded throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you also started writing, so it was a confluence of events. It was uh, the, the miscarriage, mm-hmm. uh, but also after your first-hand mm-hmm. experience um, of the devastation wrought by the Sichuan earthquake in 2008. Um, you wrote the earthquake was a, quote, devastating illustration of the tragedies of the one-child policy writ large, end quote. Uh, how did your experience of reporting on the earthquake shape your understanding of the policy itself mm-hmm. and the human cost. Yeah, let me walk this back a little mm. bit for readers who might not be so familiar. Sure. I mean, obviously, you know, people who might not have read the book will be wondering, well, what's a natural disaster mm. got to do with the one-child policy? Mm. So basically, um, one of the there was a big earthquake in 2008, the biggest earthquake China had encountered for the last 30-plus years. Uh, well over 70,000 people were killed, and this was all in the Sichuan province. But... What was interesting, uh, little known fact at that time and for many years after, was that the area near the epicenter of the earthquake was actually a test ground for the one-child policy before they launched it nationwide um, because they weren't sure that such a coercive policy could succeed all over the country, so they tried it out in different areas. So this is a sort of like a huge irony that when this thing happened 30-plus uh, years later, many of the people who lost their children uh, not only lost their children, they lost their only child. 
And the first inkling I had of that was in the weeks after the earthquake when I saw many parents going to hospitals um, as um, to reverse the sterilizations that they'd been also forced to have that form part of the policy. Because it wasn't just a matter of, oh, you just have your one child and that's it. No, you have your one child in many parts of the country. You are also required to be sterilized after that because the government doesn't trust that you won't have more children after. And this was one way to permanently ensure that they would not have to think about that problem. But of course, this doesn't take into account tragedies or personal desires. And as this... Um, you know, incident showed it was just a huge human cost of that, which is magnified many times over. It's bad enough to have a natural disaster that kills many children. It's worse when, you know, there was this particular policy that ensured that many of the children were your only children. <laughs> yeah. And given, I mean, you know, as, as you said, this was a, a test case mm-hmm. for the policy. Um, and the fact that most of these people's children were, were killed by the earthquake, um, was there any reaction by the Chinese government then to start ameliorating the policy? Actually, you know, so I think that the the tragedy of the earthquake wasn't so much the natural disaster, which in itself was terrible, but the cover-up mm. after that, because 2008 was also the year of the Olympics, mm. which was actually the narrative that China wanted to have. Beijing was, you know, that was the big story they were preparing. This was um, their global party. This was a coming up party. This was to mark the ascendance of China as a major global power after a hundred century of humiliation. They had spent years preparing for this moment. And so they did not want this other narrative to come and overtake that story. So what was very painful for me to see were all these parents who were naturally, of course, you know, not only grieving, but they also wanted answers because one of the reasons why so many children were killed was because the schoolhouses were poorly built. And so they wanted, you know, uh, uh, you know, very justly to find out what were the reasons, who, you know, who, who was behind it. They wanted justice. And all this was swept aside and they, you know, and pushed down just so that they could have the Olympics and have that story be the main story. So very quickly after that, you know, protesting parents were, you know, uh, confined, uh, made to sign these documents saying things like, I promise to go back to full production and, um, as soon as possible mm. and not to make a fuss. And so uh, to me, that was one of the obscenities uh, mm. of that policy, you know, that this was so much more important than to let a very of the grieving process and the desire for justice mm. come and take for over. Yeah. And, of course, anyone who tried to, um, I suppose, you know, uh, bring attention to it, uh, whether domestically or internationally, faced fairly severe consequences, probably, you know, there are... Um, yeah, there were dissidents. There were people yeah. who tried to look into... I mean, Ai Weiwei tried... I mean, for a long yeah. time, it was really hard to even find out... The names or how many children mm. were killed. I mean, it was a very simple policy. How many children were killed? Mm. What are their names? You know, I mean, we have names of, of people mourning their losses in 9-11 and every other natural disaster mm. there is mostly. And yet for this one, it was somehow verboten. You could, just even to try and find out any of these things meant that you risk um, harassment by security state officials. And in many cases, there were some dissidents who were jailed. Mm. They weren't even dissidents. I wouldn't even no, call them dissidents. No. They wanted just very simple answers. Mm. Uh, how badly would a schoolhouses bill, who mm. was responsible, and none of this was allowed to be 
fully brought to light or aired. Mm. I mean, you mentioned Ai Weiwei, and that's mm-hmm. probably the most um, the most famous. well-known internationally yes. to most yeah. people. So and just for our listeners, Ai Weiwei, a very famous artist. Um, yeah, he's kind of known as the sort of Andy Warhol of China, yeah. maybe, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and he attempted to create um, a sort of living database um, documenting the names of the children killed. Yes, and he endured a lot of harassment. Mm. I think they, they jailed him, supposedly, on some trumped-up charges about not paying taxes and and um and not only him at least he had a higher profile because he was famous but people who work for him or people who work with him um suffered quite terribly uh, mm. some of them yeah well so this was a policy as you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. formulated written by men uh, and the measures that were taken to implement it were largely coercive yeah. uh, and women bore the brunt of this yes. so and I, you asked me mm. about <laughs> let me get back to yeah. that I'm sorry I didn't um, you asked me about you know the fact that I wrote about the fact that I had a miscarriage mm. in the process of this so the story behind that was I was um, when I, as I was reporting this, and you know, I was in my late thirties, and also having that question in my mind that I think a lot of people face at one point: Do I want to have children or not? Um, is it too late? Should I have? And you know, as all this was going on, and I'm busy in the field reporting, um, in you know, about people who've lost their children in quite the most horrific ways possible, I, I find to my surprise that I am pregnant, and. I and this is only after years, years later, and later on I have a miscarriage. What I mean to say is, and all these incidents happen, and I didn't like, you know, oh my gosh, this is part of the story because I didn't think that, I thought they were two very separate things. It was only years later after I left China and I was working at the book and I was able to take some sort of distance that I thought to myself that this might have some interesting part of the process because one, it was about the idea of what. You know, I was wrestling with questions like, why do we want children? Mm-hmm. What is why the um, the emotions governing the desire and the loss of a child can be so powerful, which I felt to a slight degree, though certainly not to the extent that these people did. Um, and three, uh, the aftermath of that was I also started trying to have fertility treatments mm. in China. And then that uncovered another um, you know, side to the whole one-child policy, which is people using technology to get around the one-child policy, trying to have twins or triplets. So I thought, you know, after mulling it over, that you know, blending it into the story would help make this much more accessible to a lot more people who may never go to China and um, and, and but will certainly maybe empathize more of the understanding of these things, you know. So I, I did wrestle with it because um, you know we are trained as journalists not to be a part of the story, mm. and also I think there's a thing that you know foreign correspondents writing about China serious topics. I was actually warned by some, you know, friends, colleagues, editors, are you sure you want to put that in? Uh, you know, do, do you think you might not be taken seriously? You know, is this a little too hysterical? <laughs> you know, these are always the concerns, um, you know, when you're writing about big, important foreign policy topics. But I felt at the same time, it is about one of the most intimate parts mm. of, you know, and I felt that, you know, maybe, you know, I, weaving it in judiciously mm. um, could enhance the story. Mm. Now, of course, some people may agree and some people may not. <laughs> well, I have to say I'm one of the people who agree because well, thank you. <laughs> it, it could very well have been a really, you know, a dry, dry account, yeah. uh, purely focusing on demography. But having that human element to it, well, it, it really does bring it home for people who, who read about it and think about it as an issue that isn't simply confined to China as such, but 
has more global ramifications, really, or at least is a shared experience mm-hmm. globally. So just on, on that note, mm-hmm. uh, you, you write that soon China will be too male. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what impact might this gender imbalance have? Uh, that's a question mark more than anything else. Mm. I mean, we know some of these numbers. So um, right now, um, China has something like 30 million surplus men, which 30 million, I think, is something roughly like the population of Australia. I'm correct. So, you know, you know, for to help people visualize, you know, imagine an Australian sized population that's filled just with men. Um, and, you know, there are, of course, um, you know, very strong social scientist theories that look at, you know, largely male populations. And most of the time, we they're not good, happy populations. They're usually much more violent, much more unrest. If we look at um, the Arab Spring, um, demography played a large part of it. A lot of this dispossessed young angry men. Um, if we look at prison populations, for example, that's another. Yeah. So the theory about China, and this is the thing we're not quite sure yet about, is one: um, how will it play out in China? Is there going to be an issue with violence, arresting? And there have been some um, social scientists um, who have theorized that this is one of the reasons why China is much more militant now and much more aggressive. I don't necessarily agree with that because I think that there are actually many more reasons why China mm, yeah. is much more ascendant on the world stage today. However, I did um, find quite a lot of strong evidence that shows that there is a strong correlation where uh, with provinces which are much higher uh, sex disparity mm. and um, uh, domestic crime. So you know, so it makes sense and it, it, to me. So so those places have much more incidences of crime, and which are all correlated by their gender disparity, which right. are directly linked to it. Yeah. So that makes sense. Oh, now, other than that, how does it play across on a personal level? Mm. And I think it really does. So you know, we're used to thinking of these, um, you know, things that's happening in rural areas. Maybe don't really, ex- um, you know, ex- affect the day-to-day running of uh, things in China. But it, this really go- goes to the heart of marriage and dating. Mm. Which you know, so um, there's evidence, for example, that um, uh, it's affected property prices. Right. For example, yeah. you know, parents who have sons uh, will buy, um, you know, apartments to help make their sons more eligible on the marriage market. Mm. And of course, this creates, um, you know, an artificial bubble in some sense. And so there's um, economists who have um, done their studies and theorized that it's, it's added, you know, like 10 to 15 percent in certain markets. Yeah. Um, you know, and this the other part, which is very interesting, is it also goes with the little emperor syndrome, right? Mm. So um, if you are a parent, uh, if you have a child and it's an only child, you are understandably very, very involved in their choice for a mate. Mm. And if your child is a son and you are aware of the gender disparities, which are very prevalent in parts outside of Beijing and Shanghai, then there's even more anxiety involved in the process. And what we see this manifest in is things like those kinds of um, marriage market services that you see public parks where parents will put classified ads for their children. Mm. Um, this is actually quite common now that you go to a big public park in, say, Beijing or Shanghai, and then you see a group of retirees and a lot of handwritten notices on, you know, laid out there, and it usually says something like, okay, my daughter is born in the year of the rat, she is 40, we would like to find somebody who's born in this year, is making this much money mm. with this much high school education. And quite frequently, most of the time, the children themselves are not aware or don't wish to play any part of it. But the parents are so worried about this whole process. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is one of those things that happen. So it, it, it's kind of woven into the life 
of of a live stream of of mainstream China. Mm. It's not just a, a you know a distant thing that has no effect. Yeah. yeah. Well, with this generation of little emperors. Um, they they've obviously grown up in a fundamentally different environment um, than their parents might have or mm-hmm. their grandparents might have, um, and I suppose you know now that they they've grown up, mm-hmm. um, how has China's or Chinese society's thinking broadly changed as a result of the policy? So what impact might this changed mindset mm-hmm. have on Chinese society as a whole? Well, um, I don't know, but if, if it's a changed impact, but I mean, certainly there's been a creation of um, the myth of the perfect family. Yeah. And and in China, for thirty plus years, it was a one child family. So some of it has sunk in. So uh, now the government is trying to go to a two child family because they they have you know desperate to shore up you know sagging birth rates, but they're coming up against the seeds that they've planted for thirty something years. If you spend thirty something years telling people that the one child family is ideal, uh, some of it has to have sunk in. Otherwise, there's no power in advertising at all. Mm. So that's one issue. Um, but. It's not just a pure China uh, thing. I mean, you know, Australia is a beneficiary of the one-child policy. Mm. You, you know, UTS is a beneficiary. How many Chinese students do you have here from mainland China? A lot. And I'll yes. wager that most of them, um, quite a lot of them will probably be, you know, only children mm. because it's expensive to go to Australia. And if you had many siblings, your parents may not be able to afford to send you here. But if you're just your one and only and your precious, you are going to give everything to that one child, mm. including an expensive overseas education. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that leads in nicely to this next question, which is... Um, uh, there is, broadly speaking, a tendency to think of the one-child policy as purely a domestic issue mm-hmm. for China. Um, so the impact on the economy aside, mm-hmm. what are some of the other global effects um, it might have already produced or is likely to produce? Well, um, one effect has been um, in terms of the economics. Now, China um, came, you know, uh, grew economically as a manufacturing powerhouse, mm. you know, and throughout much of the 90s and the early 2000s. And part of that was because of the abundant supply of labor, which was all pre, uh, you know, one-child policy, people born before then. Uh, the one-child policy has, you know, obviously curtailed um, the population growth. And one of the results is labor is more expensive now. Fewer people, and you know, it's more expensive to hire them. And so China is no longer the uh, factory of the world. You know, it's much more cheaper to make a T-shirt in, in, in Bangladesh now, for example. Um, it's still it's still very much involved in, I think, high-value manufacturing, like your cell phones and, you know, the glass and that kind of stuff. But right now the economy has to transition to a consumption-based economy. It's no longer just export-based. And um, so having, um, you know, a change, you know, significantly altered its demography um, has an effect on that. So, you know, many economists will say that, you know, China does have significant headwinds going ahead in terms of their growth. Those double-digit growth percentages are a thing of the past. Um, and one of the things that is going to be a problem for them going ahead as they try and grow will be the altered demographics that they have themselves created, which is to say, um, f- and, and this is a problem that isn't going to be in the next five years or mm. so, it's going to be probably like 20, 30, which is um, a significantly older population, right? So by 2050, one in, one in four, you know, Chinese mm will be a retire of retirement age. Yeah. And if you think about it in actual absolute numbers, that is all of Europe. 
you know, basically. So, um, and I, I'm, you know, if, if all the retirees in China were to form their own country, they would be the world's third largest population. You would have China, India, and senior China. <laughs> and yeah. so it, how, how would that affect um, the economics? Well, you know, Every big growth industry we've seen has always been, you know, young, vibrant consumption, right? You know, so, you know, older people don't necessarily buy the latest cell phones or the cars or all those things that make the engines of the economy run really fast. Now, we see that with Japan. Uh, Japan's economy has been sort of plateaued and, and been in a very stagnant stage. And part of this is also because of its demographic makeup. It is the oldest society in the world. Take China and magnify that all and also... Bear in mind that China has not reached that level of affluence that Japan has. Mm. And then you begin to see all sorts of problems with that. Because, you know, as a global uh, economic leader, China has been the growth engine for all of us. Yeah. Um, it's been the one that's been driving global economic growth for, for much of that. So that's not going to be the case in the future. Um, and so we are going to have to adjust to that. And and quite likely, global economic growth from that sector is, is not going to come. And it will have to come from elsewhere, or there will be an overall slowdown. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's great that you put it into perspective like that by virtue of comparison with other countries. Mm-hmm. I mean, i just add to that another striking um, fact that you'd had in your book, which is that I think by the mid-2020s, the prediction is that for every 1.6 uh, workers, there'll be one retiree mm. you know as distinct from at present or just a few years ago where the ratio of Five workers one. yes exactly yeah. yeah so so that's quite significant right because um that's also a measure of economic productivity right so you you and if you translate it into personal terms mm-hmm. uh, you know imagine if you are one person and you have to take care of four or five adults aging adults you know china already has something like more than 25% of the world's uh, Parkinson's sufferers. So, and by 2050, that's going to jump to well over 60%. So this could be a public health crisis of looming proportions, just in number, sure numbers alone. And China has nowhere near that level of infrastructural support for this aging population yet. I mean, they are doing as much as they can to try and build this up, but the numbers are huge. Mm. And then on top of that, so you have to depend on the personal level kids taking care of their parents and then you have just one kid <laughs> and and that's a huge huge burden so this is part of the reason why they have um switched to the two-child policy uh but one of the problems with that is in addition to wanting more women to reproduce they are also missing the women that are the caretakers of elderly people traditional caretakers mm. as well as the mothers of the future <laughs> so yeah um, it is quite a pickle it, it is and well so that's i suppose a good note to to end on is um on January 1, 2016, the Chinese government officially ended its one-child policy, allowing all couples in China to have two children. But in your view, has this decision had any impact whatsoever on family planning in China? And is it actually going to you know, um, have an impact in future, given changing mentality and also resources? Uh, and on that note, will China be able to successfully at some point in time, ameliorate the detrimental effects of its policy? Well, that's the big, you know, ticket question, Mm. right? Um, And um, the evidence suggests not 
uh, it's not very likely, right? Because China isn't the only society which is trying desperately to sh- basically increase birth rates. Almost every modern Europe has gotten, you know, has been trying to do that. Japan has, and um, Singapore has, and you know, in almost all these cases, they haven't really worked out very well at all. Um, it's much harder to prevent people uh, to make people have children than to prevent them from having children. You know, so you know when when this movie Handmaid's Tale came out, for example. The new remake, um, it's really struck a chord because people are seeing how you know the, the, in this new world, it's not reigning in fertility that's the problem. It's it's infertility, yeah. and so yes, it's a big question mark whether China can can do that. In it, I mean, and, and I'm sure on a smaller level, definitely having a you know a less onerous rules regarding reproduction is better for everyone. Of course, certainly you like to be able to have more choice. To be able to have two versus one, it's a nice choice to have. You know, versus not whether or not you avail yourself on a level of personal happiness, it was much better that they loosen the rules. But in terms of actual numbers needed to sort of grow and keep the you know economy at replacement rate or close to replacement mm. rate, it's quite hard to see how that could happen. You know, you know one of the problems they've had for the last thirty plus years is population momentum. They call it right. You know, you know babies having babies and it's it's hard to slow down population growth. But once the tide turns, it's equally hard, if not more so, to switch it up. And this is, brings me back to the question. This was all envisioned by rocket scientists who sort of thought, and they, you know, they weren't all stupid. They, they, you know, these are very smart. And so when they envisioned this problem, what, 30-plus years ago, they thought that it could be addressed. You could just flip up fertility switches and just get more women to have more children. And, you know, this is one of those, probably one of the biggest mistakes that history has, you know, these mis- missed assumptions that um, it's fertility is like a switch, mm. up or down, you know. Women are not made that way, and yeah. we all know that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, unfortunately, I think we've run out of time or have at least gone a little bit over. Um, but thank you very, very much indeed, May, for taking the time to talk to us about your book, One well, thank Child, you. um, and for sharing with us your research and insights into what is an incredibly complex issue with lasting and far-reaching uh, effects. And as to, you know, where to now, I suppose that is the big question question that no one has an immediate answer to. Um, Unfortunately, we were only able to scrape the surface of of this policy during the discussion with May, but for anyone who's interested in finding out more, you might like to read One Child for a Fuller Picture. So again, thank you very much for your time, May. Thanks, Eleanor. ACRI will also be hosting May in conversation with Catherine McGrath, former chief political correspondent at SBS and also formerly Asia editor and Southeast Asia correspondent for the ABC at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney tonight, August 1. You'll be able to listen to audio of that discussion on ACRI's website, australiachinarelations.org. That's australiachinarelations.org. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes. Our next episode will feature Dr Jane Golley, economist and deputy director of the Australian National University's Centre on China and the World, who will share her insights into China's Belt and Road Initiative and the implications for Australia. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS. And thanks very much for listening. Thank you.